You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and today we are buzzing into episode 91, which is full of Evergreen's winter gardening tips, some listener questions, and uh, a little discussion about dirty water. Oh, okay. So, um, But we had some follow-up stuff, so Fran, why don't you kick into that? So uh, one of the questions I posed when we did That's Hot on the last buzz, my pick was Michella Repens, and... I had never witnessed that one in nature personally, um, and a lot of our listeners has. So I, I, I had I had asked if anyone has any experience with this. So Skip Burns was was kind enough to post pictures of where he'd seen it, and uh, he said he sees sees it mainly in wooded areas with no uh, competing grasses or or heavy competition. So it might not be something you know. Typically, it's in wooded areas. Probably not something you're going to put in the middle of your yard. Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty specific on where it's found naturally. So, Skip, thank you so much for for sharing that with us. So. Yeah, and then um, we also had the question uh, from our last buzz with the listener questions and um, for specific resources yeah, for the Pittsburgh area exactly, with, with yeah. uh, floral history or uh, native flora history. Yeah, and, and Russ Fernari uh, was very kind mm-hmm. to to weigh in on that, saying that the Academy of Natural Science housed the Lewis and Clark. Um, Archives, mm-hmm. I would imagine that's what it is, and a lot of their their research or findings are in when they were through that area. So if you can gain access to that, I don't know what the what that process would be for that. I, I don't yeah, know how a, easy it is, but um, we do have a connection there now. We so maybe, do maybe have we a connection. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that that possibly uh, you can check into mm-hmm. to get some more information for that. And well, you know, if, if other people know other resources. Uh, we'll make sure we keep following up with this information so we can get it to our listeners. Yep, yep. Um, one thing we talked with my that's hot plant from yes. two weeks ago was the the uh, Canada goldenrod because of the goldenrod gall, and we just did a little field trip with the Sourlands Conservancy. I'm wearing and, my Sourlands uh, Conservancy hat today, and uh, yeah, we we ate a lot of goldenrod. Well, I should <laughs> say we opened a lot of goldenrod galls. We only ate one worm each. You know, one fly larvae each. I, I got to say, cracking them open with your mouth took a lot. <laughs> like I felt yeah. like I had like holes stuck in my <laughs> my teeth, yeah. like the whole yeah. ride home. Like I was looking for a floss, but uh, we weren't coming up with a lot of success. We I know we opened a lot, mm-hmm. and we were each able to have one. But I was really, you know, you do get that little pop. Did you experience that when you took your first bite? Just like a little pop, little, little. Like you yeah. get a little pop, but it was. I got more of the hints of the banana pudding. You were saying mm-hmm. you could kind of see the maple syrup. Yep, yep. So. Yeah, but it, they are. <clears throat> that was the first I've I've seen my brother eat them a bunch. Yeah, I've never tried one, and I I got to try one. I was a little disappointed because I hurt. I know not every gall you open has one in it. There's, and you could tell that they were all kind of different stages during the. Yeah. Um, their their life cycle and you'd see somewhere oh well i can see the little the little larvae in there but it is brown and dried out so i didn't want to try those ones you know but but, um, but canada goldenrod can be aggressive so where we were finding it there yeah. were large portions yes, of that and we actually yeah. talked about 
uh, Canada Goldenrod taking over a field and, and having to eradicate mm-hmm. of it because it was yeah. choking out other other native flora. But mm-hmm. you know, it was funny. I saw the first one, and then once you see one. Like your oh, eyes you, start you, to focus it. Like you start – like we were walking around. I hadn't seen any, but once you see the first one, you start yeah, picking it. I went up. off off trail for a little bit. I got like 50. <laughs> and it was kind of like that, that Easter egg hunt mentality. Oh, there's one. And then I just kept like finding more yeah. and more. And then I realized I walked like 20, 30 yards down. This is not on the trail, <laughs> but off the trail. the trail. And I'm covered in the seed, but – but no, so but that was fun. That was a great day with the Sourlands Conservancy with with Carolyn and Lori and yes, getting to look around their foraging forest. That uh, was really cool. And, and I just put out a video about that, um, awesome. which just got, went out uh, on Tuesday. And that's in in Hopewell Township or Borough. We were right on the line. Right I know we line. started okay. in one, one and went, and to, went, the went to the other. So. But what a great! Uh, it's a one acre uh, fenced in lot, uh, all all focused on foraging, and it's all it's it's younger. But it's growing, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of great things in that. So, um, and I love the artwork. Yes, yeah. they they had local artists and and uh, school school age children drawing mm-hmm. pictures that are going on the fence, and their goal is to fill the whole fence yeah. with with native artwork. Yeah. So, so if you want to see it, it's like uh, and and Carolyn kept the positive. She's like, it's not much to look at now, but and if you don't know what the plants are, yeah, it, it's like okay, you're taking me to a, a fenced in area, and I don't know what anything is. But I can imagine just see knowing what's there and then knowing where things are laid out, going back in the, the summer when you're starting to get blueberries and strawberries and some some of these um, elderberries have flowers and all this stuff's going on. Oh, that's got to be a pretty magical place. Yeah. And then knowing that it, everything in there is consumable in some way was really cool. Yeah, I mean there's, there's pawpaw trees and persimmon and American chestnut, you know, but all at younger stages – so as this gets older and progresses, it's only going to get more and more impressive. Yep. So if you're in that area, it's it's definitely a place you you want to try to visit. Yeah. So and then the uh, other thing <laughs> we wanted to bring up was we set an official launch date for a native plant every day. Yes, it's it's going to be the Monday right after this podcast. Of course, I don't know what the the actual date is. I'm going to look I it up right that now. Is the seventh? Yeah. So February seventh. Uh, Tom and I already have two full weeks recorded. And we're going to keep as as we get into this. We're trying to record more and more. We have a guest lined up who's going to come in and record a whole week uh, with us, and we're very excited about that. And we we did let a couple of our colleagues listen to one of the episodes just to get some feedback, and everyone seems to be really excited. Yeah, about this. Yeah. And so again, it's it's a short form podcast where we cover a native plant every day. We have a little back and forth. We throw a little bit of humor in there and a lot of native plant facts. Which uh, I know I've been enlightened to a lot of plants through it, and uh, I'm me too. you're the one doing all the research that's that's researching all this. So and, and some of it's, it's been bl- a some, lot of fun. Yeah, some of it's blowing my mind, and and we try to keep the episodes to 15 minutes. Although some items are so interesting, we're going 17, 18, 19 minutes, and some are more 10 to 12. Not every not every native plant has the same. Uh, I don't want to say glory but you know some have more uses more functionality more mm-hmm. pollinator habitat yeah. you know it's there some have just a little bit more to cover than others mm-hmm. so yeah, but it, it's been a lot of fun to make we think there's a lot of value there uh similar to this podcast it took us a couple episodes that we had our vision but it took a couple episodes to realize our vision not to say the first couple are bad but they're they they get better i'd say over by- time but we did it you get to figure it out over uh, 
a, a couple days, not not a, by, a month or two. By episode six, I, yeah. I think we were we had a format down and, and we were going pretty good. But you get to grow with us. The first couple, you know, we're learning. You're learning with us, and we're just hoping that uh, that you you check it out and you you find it find it worthy of listening to every day if you have an extra 10 15 minutes you're driving to the store or or, or you're waiting to pick up a kid yeah. from sports binge you know. them on the weekends but it's a good way to really cram a lot of native plant knowledge about one individual thing something that we'd love to do more here but don't always have the time to um other than our little uh transition here to that's hot where we do kind of do that right. but on a, a bit more of scaled down scale are you ready to do that's hot yes i'm ready all right if you couldn't tell, that was my my segue into that tie. I kind of stumbled and <laughs> rumbled through it, but that was perfect. That was perfect. Would you like to go, or would you like? Yeah, to I, can, go? I can go first. And um, and we just got some snow here this past weekend, um, and it's melting very fast now. The temperatures are warming up, but seeing that snow really made me miss when I spent a lot of times in the Adirondacks in upstate New York, and just seeing like all these snow covered evergreens. Um, the one in particular, which is my plan for this week, is uh, is Suga canadensis. Did I say that right? Suga. Suga, Suga. canadensis, yeah. um, which is eastern hemlock. And uh, and I found a little bit of a, a blurb on Go Botany, which is about New England native plants, uh, about this plant that I really liked. And uh, so I'll read it real quick. And basically says, The mighty spires of eastern hemlock can tower over the other trees, especially in old-growth forests and moist, cool ravines where it grows best and can live up to 800 years. Eastern, which I didn't know that. Wow, that's, <laughs> so, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't realize that either. So eastern hemlock produces tannins, which die nearby streams of deep, deep reddish brown. These astringent chemicals were used for tanning leather in the 1800s. As a dominant and widespread tree, it provides nesting habitat for many species of birds. The sheltering evergreens boughs are uh, favored by deer for bedding grounds. Eastern hemlock is increasingly under threat from hemlock woody, woolly algid. Uh, Adelgid. Adelgid. Woolly Adelgid. First time I've actually I've seen that word a bunch, but yeah. I've never said it before. <laughs> um, a tiny sucking insect that can defoliate whole stands, and again, that's from Go Botany, which is a great resource for for New England. You know, woolly adelgid. I kind of remember it really coming to like huge threat, like in the probably like very early '90s, maybe late '80s, early '90s. And I I would see, you know, even though around here it's not. It's natural habitat. It likes it a little mm-hmm. further north, um, or a little colder, uh, cooler summers. But like I would see, I'll never forget when I worked at Moon Nurseries in Yardley. There was a house in Yardley on the main street that had a beautiful hemlock hedge. Like mm-hmm. they had it trimmed, you know. And and you would see we sold a lot of hemlocks at that time. And then mm-hmm. you started seeing woolly delgit, and you just started seeing them just slowly disappear, and and them. Not with without anyone really knowing how to control it, especially yeah. when you're you're dealing with trees that are, you know, how tall, you know, like mm-hmm. really tall. It's not like you can go through and spray every native stand. It's just yeah. not not possible. So yeah. it's it, and it's you know it's been one of those things that have gotten better in some parts of time and then gotten mm-hmm. worse. I'm starting to see it pop up as a problem in other areas of the country. And having the same panic that I saw in the early nineties, so mm-hmm. it's yeah. I don't know that this is the one that's been around for thirty years, forty years, and no one really still knows how to mm-hmm. properly control it. Yeah, but it's a. I was interested to see its native range as well because it really stretches from. I think of it as a, a species that's not. Mm. I don't want to say not native here, but not commonly found in New Jersey, yeah. um, and you have to go north to see it. But it was native to a lot of. 
uh, at least on on bot or not botany on Go- bone app it was uh native to a lot of the southern states but almost exclusively in the Appalachian range yeah and just kind of followed that up until you got into upstate New York and then it kind of spread into Massachusetts and, and uh, which I guess that's still the, the, <laughs> part the, in mountainous and parts. The one thing I'm really curious about and, and what we see, especially with with some of these evergreens, is that they tend to be in more mountainous regions mm-hmm. where it's cool summers. And then when you get them out of that preferred region is when they start getting attacked by pests. And I wonder if woolly adelgid is as much of an issue in the natural mountainous regions as it is in trees that are outside of their mm-hmm. preferred conditions. So. I guess that's something we could do a follow up on, and and help everyone with that. So I think that's a great choice, Tom. It's it's something that I know and I see, and I just don't always think about it. Yeah, and it, it was just that snow. It just reminded me of uh, spending winters in that that area in New York and seeing a whole mountainside of of that tree with uh, just like that snow covering and that green and white contrast really made you feel peaceful, very yeah. peaceful. Um, until you heard the snowmobiles. <laughs> That's not a knock on snowmobile. I enjoy it too, but it was like it did break up that serenity. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But more on that later. So my choice is, again, and it's, you know, we, we've heard people say that sometimes a, te- a temperate deciduous forest isn't necessarily as stimulating because it doesn't have as much interest as some of these mountainous regions or coniferous forests. But you know, I really begged to de- – you know, Agatha and I did a a five-mile hike about a week and a half ago. We were going through a, a place called Blueberry Hill, and they had beautiful native stands of Calmia latifolia, which is mountain laurel. Um, and it it really stood out because it is a, a native evergreen that's in the forest and, and understory, and, and there was plenty of it. So if you're unfamiliar with that plant, it, it gets 5 to 20 foot tall. It's an evergreen shrub. It's facultative upland. Um, it's long living and deer resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, it has bell shaped flowers, which really stand out when they do bloom. Uh, they're white to pink with deep rose spots inside, um, and they occur in flat top clusters. They're pollinated by bumblebees, uh, butterflies, bees, and other pollinators. Love the nectar. They are poisonous to humans, goats, uh, horses, cattle, and deer. So, uh, you can be sure, and that's all parts of the plant are, are poisonous to deer, so they're not going to browse that plant. So, But if you want to know more about that plant, this is a plant that we do cover on a native plant every day. So I don't want to give it all away. That's just a little teaser. Yeah. That's my oh, yeah. teaser. There are some good good facts. I don't think you stumped me with those facts, though. I did not. I did not. But we, I, I, I will have a ton more chances to, yeah. to stump you. But <laughs> – Moving along, let's get into this week's uh, botany-based current events, and of course, we make it a competition. Let's move along to this or that. So the results are in, and they're not as overwhelming with the amount of people that voted as last time. I knew it's like I knew I knew we were going to be I told a little you, spoiled. It was the, the war on Christmas folks, it and then the war on the war on Christmas folks really <laughs> battled it out. But there, there is a result, and the result is the dreaded tie. The dreaded tie, eight to eight. Not a lot of votes, and I'm not a fan of the tie. I know I complained about that last time, but I'm not going to complain. But um, you had an interesting way yeah, how we could. We yeah, we needed to break this tie. Yes. and um, we've we've kind of run out of options here. Yeah, so I figured, why don't we do trial by combat? All right, and what is your uh, your well, your choice let, of combat? I'm going to let you pick the the weapon. Um, I say we handle this. Like gentlemen, 
and and fight by sword. All right. I, I just happen to have my sword right here. Oh, well, I just happen to have my sword. All right. Standard standard uh, sword combat rules. Or fencing rules. Fencing which, which rules? Which do you prefer? Eh, we'll, do, we'll do fencing rules. All right. All right. You ready? Good. On guard. Ah, you got me. I'm not. I'm not picking the the sword up. You didn't know I was an avid fencer, did you? I I didn't know. Did you even know I had a fencing sword? <laughs> I, I did not. <laughs> well, I, that I carry with me just in case we have a tie. <laughs> so Tom wins this one. This is the first tiebreaker. That you have won. That's true. That's true. It almost feels like you went easy on me. No, no. I'm actually wind it from that. You got me fair and square. That's where my youth comes into play. So, <laughs> so uh, because you won, you now get to choose if you would like to present your article first or if you want to defer. I typically go second. Okay. Either by my choice or yours. So, But I'm going to change it up and go first. Um it was a really short, simple article. Uh, came out a couple weeks ago, and it was through the Xerxes Society. And uh, one of their their employees, Amy Code, uh, put out an article on uh, mid midwinter tasks for pollinator gardening. And um, it was just a really nice, easy guide. Even though she was in the Pacific Northwest, so some of the species she referenced may not be the same. Friend, you're smiling. I, I don't I know am. why. Did you hit record on Zoom? I didn't. No. All right. <laughs> yeah. I forgot all about that. It's okay because I have been really slacking on putting these on uh, on face or on YouTube lately. So all right. So I don't know if you want to. I guess it's a little late. Yeah, now. we're we're most of the way through it. So all right, all right. There I'll, you go. I'll hit it now I am, and then I, did, I can put a. <laughs> I just I recording you know, in progress. I, I had that little freak out moment where I'm like, did I hit record? And I looked. I'm like, I'm recording. I'm like, did Tom yeah, hit record? I didn't hit record. <laughs> All right, sorry about that. It was, I, I made that last-minute change before we started. No, it's not a big deal. Um, like I said, I've been slacking on putting these up on YouTube probably for last like It was basically before Christmas. We've been busy. And, um, yeah, it's just busy. so busy with a lot of stuff going on. So I've, I have a whole backlog that I've been meaning to put up, but I haven't got them up yet. But going back to my article, um, and this came out, like I said, two weeks ago, and it was midwinter task for pollinator gardening. And uh, the first thing she, she talked about was winter seeding. And said, even though in January there are small actions I can take to support pollinators, last weekend I used the uh, unwelcome but increasingly common warm weather to plant seeds that my father-in-law collected from his yard. That was a holiday gift to her. Um, while not all the seed can be planted during colder months, uh, white bro- I don't even know how to say that friend, white brogia, um, also known as fool's onion, uh, supposedly can be planted at almost any time. I only planted some of the seed as an experiment if successful. In a few years, the bees in my garden will have a new source of late spring forage. So, But this is something we can translate all over the country. Um, I know even in the upper Midwest and Northeast, frost seeding is a thing where you have like, you don't want to do it if you have a heavy snow, like we just got eight inches of snow. Yeah. You don't want to do it then. But if you have an inch, two inches, three inches, you can just seed right over that. And that snow, as it melts, will actually deposit that seed and kind of bring it into the soil um, and get good seed to soil contact. It's already keeping it moist. You're getting that cold stratification. It can work really, really well uh, in our area. And like I said, across probably the entire northern part of the the continent, I wouldn't see why it wouldn't work well 
in southern areas of the, of the country. Other than that, they don't have the opportunity to do it as much. So maybe the research isn't there on how well it works. Um, and the species might not. Uh, or later because they don't need they might not need yeah. that cold stratification because they just don't get it. Yeah. Um, so that's something you can do now. Or taking it another way, you can do that cold stratification or your winter sowing for for plants in bottles, uh, milk containers, uh, old trays, and just fill them with soil. And then you can kind of put those outside and do that same stratification process out of doors instead of doing it in your fridge, like we've mentioned on the podcast yeah. before. Um, Another thing you can do in the winter is easy weeding. Winter is a good time for some basic maintenance tasks to help prevent pest pressure in uh, in her postage stamp vegetable and pollinator gardens. First up, getting ahead of the weeds that crowd out desirable plants. The warmer temperatures that allowed me to plant are also allowing weeds uh, allowing the weeds to flourish. Since the ground is moist but not saturated, weeding is relatively easy. You can actually pull out things like dandelions because it didn't get all the roots. Um, and none of the weeds have set seed, which means if you pull them, you're not going to have new weeds from the seed coming up later. You got them before they seeded. Gotcha. So something I actually did um, not on purpose, but before the snow, I was around my garden. I just saw a couple weeds, and, man, they do pop out easy when the ground's nice <laughs> yeah, and moist. Do. But it's not fro- when it's frozen, it's not <laughs> not easy. But um, but when it's not frozen, it's it makes it a lot easier. And then you're, you're saving yourself from pulling 10, 20, 100 weeds later on because you're not letting the seed set. Um, you can deter indoor ants and other pests. Uh, another task she had on her list was to deter ants from entering her home. Her neighborhood is well known for nuisance ants, and while she likes having ants in her yard, uh, they help air the soil and improve drainage, she doesn't want them in her pantry. So to do that, she trims shrubs back at least a foot from the siding. Uh, this simple step removes a direct route for any ants to enter my home since branches won't be touching the house. Okay, so, which that makes it sense. makes sense. I I Never thought about doing that. I don't really have branches touching my house anyway. But there are some things that are close. And uh, if, if that's something that will take that step, we'd get ants every once in a while. Um, that's something that will I might want to try. Uh, and the last thing she had was leaving wild, wild spaces for the wee folk. And uh, she said, there won't be any work to do in my side yard as I leave that area pretty untamed. There's an old rhododendron with those asters and goldenrods that need a little, little care to thrive. There are also some bare spots that I leave to entice ground nesting bees. And uh, she used the title We Folk because that was what her her grandmother had said. So uh, I know okay. you got to leave the <laughs> leave wild space for the We Folk. Um, and while her grandma, she says, probably wasn't referring to insects. That's how she takes it now. Yeah. Uh, her grandma was Welsh. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so she gotcha. thinks they had a magical connotation. <laughs> so <laughs> For the leprechauns, you got to leave spaces. But uh, finishing up the article, each of the projects I am undertaking, planting flowers, avoiding chemical pest management, and leaving undisturbed natural areas for pollinator nesting are part of the Xerxes Society Bring Back the Pollinators Pledge, an easy and fun way to help conservation. The fourth step in the pledge is to engage others in this effort. To that end, like my father-in-law, I too save seeds that I share with friends and neighbors. My family laughs at me, but I get a little thrill each time I visit a friend's home and see plants that came from my yard. See for yourself, take the pledge, and spread the word and the flowers. You know, that's a great article and a lot of great practical advice that that our listeners can do at home uh, yeah, and try some different things. So that's a great It's pretty great applicable. Article. Like I said, it's not the species that are featured in the article. And you'll see this link um, on our Facebook page or on our Facebook group and uh, and on our website. Um, the species aren't going to be the same, but the, the practices and the concepts carry yeah. over across the entire country. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, how about yours? So my article this week, I, I chose for a specific reason. So this article was shared to both you and I from – 
uh, Tanya Dapke, who was our guest last week uh, for Meet Genetic Barcoding from the Academy mm-hmm. of Natural Sciences. And because we were asking her about local stream health, mm-hmm. so it's relevant to that, but it's also relevant to a future guest that we're going to have on. Um, and we can kind of start out. You know, I, I wanted our listeners to be aware of this study so that when we bring it up on the future podcast with this this guest, they kind of already know where we're going mm-hmm. and why this this organization is doing what they're doing to help. But the name of my article is "Nearly Twenty Four Hundred More Miles of Pennsylvania Streams Are Impaired Now Compared to Just Two Years Ago." Philly has the highest percentage, and this is written by Frank uh, Coomer. Uh, from the Philadelphia Inquirer, so that's the local Philadelphia newspaper. Um, now, this is a very long article. I, I tried to highlight just a little bit, but it's a lot, and I'm going to talk about a couple tables, so bear with me because it's – And um, I'm glad you're doing this because while Tanya had sent it to both of us, yeah. uh, I only read a little bit. So it's, a, it's a big article. It's so a you're very be it, my spark notes here. <clears throat> it's a very big article, so – One-third of all Pennsylvania waterways are now considered polluted enough to harm wildlife, recreation, or drinking water, according to a report released this week by the state's Department of Environmental Protection. The DEP listed 27,886 miles of streams it found impaired in one or more way, which is about 9 percent worse than its 2020 estimate. That's 2,398 more miles of stream that Pennsylvania has designated as impaired over the last two years. Philadelphia and its suburban counties have among the most polluted waterways according to this report, which is issued every other year. The Integrated Water Quality Report is mandated under the Federal Clean Water Act, which is celebrating its 50th birthday this year. That's quite a mm-hmm. – I, I can't believe it's 50 years now yeah. for that, and that's such an epic act in, in our history. Uh, Pennsylvania assesses streams for their impact on aquatic life, recreation, water supply – and whether fish can be eaten. That's no small task. The state has 85,000 miles of rivers and streams. Water samples are analyzed for ammonia, nitrates, nitrates, nitrogen, phosphates, calcium, magnesium, chloride, sulfates, and dissolved solids. The DEP sets maximum loads for the pollutants, examines bacteriological samples to assess waterways for recreational use during summer, and tests fish, uh, fish tissue samples. Deborah, let's see. Klonotic, a DEP spokesperson, said that at least some of the increase impaired stream is simply because staff assessed more miles in 2020. However, Shannon Gordy, executive director for the Chesapeake uh, Bay Foundation in Pennsylvania, said the report shows not enough is being done to protect the state's waterways and called it a sad reminder that Pennsylvania must accelerate its rate of installing practices that reduce pollution to local waters. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation has been prodding Pennsylvania for years to clean up the Susquehanna watershed. A key contributor to pollution of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so Chesapeake Bay Foundation, too, one of their initiatives that we we are planning on talking about in the future has been 10 million trees in 10 mm-hmm. years to help it just in the Chesapeake Bay watershed area to help help with water quality um, over time. Mm-hmm. So I've included a couple tables that I'm going to just try to read, um, and they show – Philadelphia and the counties that surround it are among the highest in Pennsylvania in the percent of streams impaired for aquatic life, recreation, fish consumption, or drinking. So in Philadelphia County, 129 miles were assessed. 127 miles of that were impaired, so 97% of Philadelphia's waterways. Um, Delaware County was next, uh, 380 miles assessed, 363 miles impaired, so 94%. And then it goes down to Lancaster, Bucks, uh, Northumberland, Chester, Bucks County, where I grew up, which was 1,095 
miles assessed, 799 miles impaired. So it's still 69% mm-hmm. uh, than elk, Allegheny, dolphins. So um, the table shows top sources causing stream impairment and how many miles of impaired streams by category. So um, unknown, 14,356 14, miles. Um, they don't know what the impairment source is, but mm-hmm. uh, 1,139 miles of aquatic life. 3171 of fish consumption, potable water 40, recreation 10,006. So the other largest impairment sources are asset mine drainage, agriculture, and storm runoff and sewers. So we know – we don't know what the unknown is. That's really difficult. But mm-hmm. asset mine drainage is not one that I would have thought of because mm-hmm. um, that's not affecting the whole state, just portion yep. of states. But yep. agriculture – Storm runoff and sewers. Storm runoff and sewers mm-hmm. has to be – I would imagine in Philadelphia it's got to be a large portion because oh, you yeah. have this huge city, and it's kind of hard to retrofit an entire city. Mm-hmm. Stormwater and sewer and agriculture plays a big part, and that's a large part of Pennsylvania's agriculture. Yeah, so. and it's it's tough to say because um, by my quick math, about half of the mileage that they're accounting for is still unknown What what's causing that. So it's – you can take something and say, okay – Acid bind draining is a quarter of our, our issue here. We need to address that. And I think there is some things being done. I would assume. I don't I yeah. don't know. That things are being done to address some of that since uh, since they've discovered that it's having such an impact. Um, agriculture, I know there there's things going to – but it's going both ways. I know uh, yeah. what, a couple of years ago there was the whole up and back and forth about um, how well, – it's, it's a little bit – um, more in depth that I'm not as brushed up on as I should be, but it's basically DP or EPA has control um, or can regulate certain streams, but they have to be navigable waterways. Oh, okay. And they redefined at some point what a navigable waterway was, and it opened up like thousands of miles, probably more than that, of waterways for regulation, which really affected a lot of farmers. And then I think that that was an Obama era thing, and then when it got to Trump, I think they changed it back, and then so it declassified some yeah. navigable stuff. I, I was going to yeah. say back, going back probably ooh, ten, twelve years ago, I I attended a watershed conference where a whole afternoon session was to break down legislature and yeah. just define a navigable waterway. Yeah. We had a one-hour discussion on defining a navigable waterway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not like it's – the regulations aren't easy, mm-hmm. and they're, some, they're somewhat open for interpretation, but I think something went all the way to the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. And that's why yeah. we were having mm-hmm. a brush up yeah, on it. Yeah, it's a, a big, big thing. And because you think, okay, you'd redefine a navigable waterway, and now it, it – now you're talking about probably hundreds of thousands more miles of well that affects millions and millions of people and when you're talking about agriculture of their livelihood yeah so if all of a sudden they didn't have regulation and they're trying to do the right thing but now there is that regulation it's you can't be so specific with every single one of those individuals where you're like oh well your stream it's going to be really hard for you to keep these pollutants out so we're giving you but your neighbor they it's easier for them. No, it's kind of I don't want to say it's a blanket, but there's tears, I'm assuming. But yeah. it's it's really hard to address every single thing fairly, instance fairly. So that was a lot of the the uproar from the agricultural community about that. Yeah. But on the other side, this is still a big thing, but there was I've seen reports where 
if you just leave like a 10 foot prairie strip on your on the side of ditches or waterways like a little riparian buffer type area it'll the roots actually clean the water about 90 percent so wow. they'll actually remove 90 percent of the impurities that would otherwise be going if you just plowed right up to the edge um, and farmed right up the edge you're getting 100 percent of the impurities you just put in 10 feet now 10 feet around an entire field is a, is many many acres yeah, um, and and I know there's a big push for extension agents to to work with farmers and agricultures yeah. because you you would see in some cases cattle crops grazing right up to the water source, oh, yeah. which you don't want. Mm-hmm. You think of all that nitrogen, um, you know. So there was a big big push for riparian buffers for these reasons, and getting farmers to agree to mm-hmm. relinquish some of that farmable land for the health of yeah. the health of the waterways. Yeah, so it's something that needs to be addressed, but it's not as simple as saying, "Oh, well, it's." Because you're dealing with a, a profession where you're working long, long hours. You have a lot of, like, sweat equity into it. Yeah. Slim margins. You're making very, very little money. Um, a lot of the farmers I know, basically, I shouldn't say doing is a hobby, but they're doing it because they enjoy it, they love it, it's been in their family's generations, and they don't want to let it die. Yeah. But from a business perspective, they aren't profitable. Yeah. Um, and... It's it's something that's important. It's it's just, there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. Yeah. So it's not as easy as just saying, oh well, you need to do all this and this because just losing a little bit of land and raising that cost can go from we're just making it by to we're going out of business and look at your new warehouse or housing <laughs> development or something <laughs> else. So it's, and that that explains why you know by the third yeah. or fourth generation of farmers they start looking at you know their investment. You know their oh, yeah. their retirement is in the land, not mm-hmm. in in the business. So yep. that's why you start getting that far removed. And it's like, wow, I'm doing a whole lot of work, and I'm not making a whole lot of money. I, oh, but yeah. I can make a whole lot of money if I sell this land. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's um, I, I I completely understand it. I think yeah. that's probably a whole nother conversation. But I'm really glad that that Tanya sent this to us and followed up with that because that was a question we had. It was was were things getting better? And apparently um, not. No, and there uh, it's. And places are really pretty bad. <laughs> now, if so. you had – I wonder how far back this study goes and if they mm-hmm. had done it in the 70s. Like yeah. it may be getting bad, but did it improve to a certain point and now we're starting to see a decline? Yeah. I, that I don't know. This just popped in my head, but it's, it's kind of – even I, you could probably frame this kind of similarly how they do with recycling. It's like, oh, we're recycling 500 times more than we did like 20, 30 years ago and – yeah, that's true, but we're also using X amount more pla- – like yeah. we're using way more plastic than we were then too, maybe a thousand times more plastic. So we're recycling at a lesser rate than we were even though there's more product going in. We're just consuming so much. Yeah. So it's kind of – it kind of strikes me that way. Like we're we're – yes, we're cleaning the water, but we're still dirting it yeah. at probably a, a greater rate. But, but this is uh- – a great article. I only touched on maybe a tenth mm-hmm. of what the article uh, uh, consisted of. So uh, make sure we'll have the links in uh, on the website and make sure you, you do both, uh, read both, and then you get to vote on the Native Plants Healthy Planet uh, Facebook group. And I'd like to see more than 16 yeah. votes oh, yeah. next time. But well, there's be, enough people in there to, to oh yeah we're up to, we're up to votes. over 850 people so but it's a great article make sure you you go back and read the whole thing because there's a lot of great information that I mm-hmm. didn't present and Tom's article is a great article as well so uh, make sure you do that and then you get to vote because and of course the choice is yours. 
All right, what do you think? Listener shout-outs? I think so. All right. Listener, listener, shout-out. All right, would you like to go? I can go because I think we displayed what one of our listeners wrote a five-star review about, and that was was New Elan... New Englandjelical. Yes. <laughs> I knew I was going to screw that up, but she left five star review, and she basically she, was he. titled, or she or he. Yeah. I was assuming she. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't I know no why. Idea. But um, said there was something for everything, everyone, and it's not boring, which is probably the best compliment we can get that we're not boring. Because yeah. sometimes we wonder if it's just interesting <laughs> to us or not. Um, and she said that we were handled everything with thoughtfulness and nuance. Uh, which is what one of the things we try to do. It's we, much we more complex do. than than black or white. It's it's yes. a whole bunch of different shades of gray. And you know what? I'm a very black and white person by mm-hmm. nature. And over time, I've been trying to get better at that. And this is my good practice ground for doing that. But I, I it was such a fantastic review. I was very humbled by yeah. it. Yeah, and she just – that review – I said she again. That review for that person – um, struck me that they probably have a lot of uh, handle everyday life with a lot of thoughtfulness and nuance, and are also not boring. Yes, so, uh, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But a um, couple others that I had were uh, Lori and Callan um, from the Salins Conservancy, just showing us around that, and that was wonderful because they're talking about things we talked about on the podcast because they listen to the podcast too. So it's interesting having those work conversations with conversation about conversations we had between Fran and I, or, or with other guests and stuff like that. So it's. It adds a whole nother, uh, another component to our work conversations. But then it kind of feels like, why are we just talking about the podcast so much? <laughs> I feel like we're like bragging sometimes. But we're not trying to. It's just no. so many of the interesting interactions we have come through this this form. Yeah. Um, and the other one I had was uh, Dan Glenda, who's one of our local um, uh, township, not township commissioners, committee members. And um, – and, he actually listens. He just he walks around our farm a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say he's a native plant guy at all, but he's been really diving into a lot of these podcasts and podcasts and learning a lot. And he really liked the one. Uh, I think it was with um, what we do with Rick McCoy and and Dan Mabe and uh, oh, on the what, uh, what do we talk about for the the, the, the lawn the, regulation yeah, or with lands- the electric. Um, landscape tools. Yes. He was enjoying that. He was in, thinking about some of the other, um, this new Jersey native plants bill and how that affects local development and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was really thinking outside the box with a lot of these things. So that was a really cool conversation to have. The other thing he brought up is he was, <laughs> he said, man, I thought Fran was a lot older <laughs> than his picture. <laughs> yeah. He thought you were in your seventies. So, wow. Well, the way I talk, sometimes I talk <laughs> like I'm in my seventies. It's but, all that complaining. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Tell me about it. I talk about yeah, the good like, old I days. His, I saw his picture and I thought he was going to be like this 70 year old man. <laughs> he really doesn't look that old. Oh, <laughs> uh, me talking yes, about had... those, those dang beetles <laughs> and the, the, the music these kids listen to these days. Yeah. Oh, so that, I had to throw that in there. Too. Th- those are some great shout outs. So speaking of he or she, one of my shout outs today, uh, got a wonderful email from Jason Goldman, uh, from Monmouth County parks. And it's someone that we deal with, but he, um, uh, shared that he found the podcast and is a big fan of the podcast and had to laugh when I shared my secret that many of our customers think that I'm a female. 
because he was he was sorry to say that he also all this time thought I was a female. And until we talked until you revealed it. Until I revealed oh, it, yeah. Gosh. So yeah. he had been a customer. We've talked. We've emailed. He's listened to the podcast. He he thought for t- I was for two, years, <laughs> for two years. He listened. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, he 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 didn't listen all the way through. He found it and gotcha, started gotcha. listening midway. So, um, and I got a good laugh out of that, and I yeah. appreciated that he shared that. The other one was an email that both you and I received uh, from Lori Rosenberg, um, and she gave a wonderful email, just kind of sharing with us about listening the podcast, and she's currently. Um, Taking a sabbatical and 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 working on rehabilitating some property, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, and some of the things that she's doing on her own land, and some of the tips she's learned from us, and it was it was just a very nice uh, way to reach out and and just share some of what's going on with her and 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 how she consumes the podcast, and we really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it was really hard to pick listener shoutouts. That's why we picked so many. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, because all this wonderful. Feedback. I have no complaints. All right, so and we, we can do just... have a lot of questions. So that's actually our main discussion today. That's is our topic today. Our questions. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. And I want to have them answered immediately. It's a simple question. Um, no, I didn't hear you. What was your question? So uh, we actually have three questions from three different parts of the country uh, this week, and I thought it was wonderful. And last buzz, we had two questions too. So we've been getting. All of a sudden, fantastic questions, mm-hmm. and we appreciate it. And we're going to try to answer these. Yeah, uh, to it's the, not just the quantity questions; it's the quality. Quality of the questions are really good. We've been getting great. So let's let's start off with the first one. Hello, Fran and Tom. This is Anne from Minnesota. Uh, I was hoping that you could help me out with this idea I've been kind of rolling around uh, in my head. I would like to put in a little thicket in my yard uh, to try and get some more birds and bugs and maybe even get some nesting birds and birds that stick around in the winter. Um, The spot that I was thinking of putting it in is mostly shaded. It's under the drip line of a couple pretty dense canopy trees. Um, But starting in the mid to late afternoon, part of it gets some direct sun. The other part still gets dappled sun through kind of a sparsely leafed maple. Um, And just to kind of make it, more interesting, I guess. Um, I have a couple little kids. I've got a toddler and a preschooler, and I thought it'd be really fun to plant this thicket or hedgerow so that I could have a little tunnel through there for little kids and really determined adults. Um, So I've been thinking about uh, plants that are native to Minnesota that would have a lot of uh, wildlife value and would make a nice thicket that I could uh, that could make up the walls for this little tunnel area. Um, the ones I've come up with so far are arrowwood viburnum, uh, round-leafed uh, dogwood, maybe some serviceberry. I think uh, the short one that I saw was called sand serviceberry, and uh, hazelnut. Um, I think beaked hazelnut seems like it would do better in shade, but American hazelnut more easily available. Um And uh, so just to kind of throw a wrench in everything, I should mention a few things. Um, I don't actually have any experience with any of these species, as you may have guessed. Um, I also have no training uh, and pretty much no experience with any pruning. Um, My plan with this 
tunnel idea was that I'd, I'd plant like a row of really closely spaced shrubs and small trees to make up one side of the tunnel and then uh, a couple feet away plant another row of closely spaced shrubs and small trees. And um, then while they're growing, I'd, I'd prune the area to keep a tunnel about two feet wide and three feet tall going through this little um, this little shrubby area. Um, and I was hoping that as it, as they all grow in, I wouldn't need to keep doing that so much because that area wouldn't be getting a lot of light anyway. Um, I have read that some of these species, uh, colonize from the roots. So I'm not sure if they'd be sending up shoots in the area that I want my kids to be able to. All right. So it kind of ran out of of space for the mm-hmm. the recording and I know you and I started to put a little bit of a list together but there was a second message um because it did get cut off she wanted mm-hmm. to let us know to throw another layer on it it's a smaller urban lot yeah. so she doesn't have a, a ton of space to do this so we started I I started envisioning it in my head as as two rows um but my first choice and and I think I think and had a lot of great choices already. Mm-hmm. My first choice that I thought of was Viburnum lentago because when that buries, it really starts to droop over, and I thought that would give you that drooping effect to create the canopy. But it does get 15 to 20 foot tall. So in a smaller yeah. urban lot, that may be difficult. But as Ann mentioned, pruning, I think you might be a little limited to 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 – accommodate this so pruning is going to be a factor so you have to pick things that mm-hmm. that are very respond to pruning well viburnum lentago viburnum dentatum both respond to to good pruning so you know like anything else you could do a quick youtube video or google search on proper pruning techniques mm-hmm. make sure you're you're pruning close enough but not too close um you know things like that you can actually use head shears on for some of the newer mm-hmm. shoots yeah. just to kind of get around it feeling but um I just kind of like the arching branches on that. Yeah. So what did what did the you? The one have? that came up to me when I was listening to the message was uh, was elderberry or Sambucus canadensis, and and that I, does stay is, that does stay much smaller. Yeah, it stays uh, six to twelve feet. I've the ones I'm thinking of are probably about eight feet tall. Yeah. Um, and it's something you can actually cut back almost to the base every year and yeah. let grow back, so you can keep it at a reasonable height. But the reason I thought of that is we have a. a little seed orchard that's across the street from the nursery here. And um, years ago, my job was to mow that on a, a weekly or biweekly basis. And that was one where it really, that species and the, the viburnum nitatum really formed like a tunnel that you're kind of riding through. Uh, unfortunately, the tunnel was a little bit lower than my head. So <laughs> I had to ride through and steer with the one hand and like hold my hand yeah. in my front of my face on the other. So I wasn't, and I'm yeah. still getting whacked with branches and yeah. berries. I'm getting, my shirts are getting stained, but, um, but it did form that tunnel. And uh, and like and, I said, that, the ones there are probably about eight feet tall, and we prune them back every couple of years. We will prune them, yeah. almost and, cut them back to the base. And that's you on a mower. You could probably prune yeah. them back even tighter to keep it. Yeah. Like if I, a small now, if crawling. I was a, a like a, a child, I would I could walk through it. No, I'm thinking of my son who's who's like three feet tall. He yeah. could walk through it no problem, and it would be like a tunnel over him, and I'd have to crawl through behind him. But yeah, sitting and, on the mower, I was getting and, whacked in the face a lot. <laughs> and for the next choice, the reason. 
we we have three, and this is the third. What made me think of this one, just like the other two, is as they get older, they tend to not have a lot of lower branches. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be up. I, I was going to say, if if you get viburnum lentago up to eight foot, probably you're a foot to two foot off the ground before you have branching, or yep. you can limb them up too to make sure that you have a smoother tunnel so no one's getting branches in their eyes mm-hmm. or anything like that. But the next one was black chokeberry, and we did we did double check to make sure all three of these choices are native to Minnesota, which they are. Uh, but black chokeberry gets three to ten foot tall, and when it buries, the, the berries are enough to uh, – you know, it's a little more upright in form, but the berries will help it droop. It's it's a little stiffer branching, so it may not give you that dense canopy um, that Lentago or Dentatum or, or uh, elderberry would. But it would at least – again, that's another one where it's going to be a little more bare to the bottom as it gets taller, so you can – can easily navigate through and that's i guess one of the things i should have brought up with the, the sambucus is it's gonna put out new stems so you would have to maintain the ground as well yeah but um like we had over there it was we're using a lawnmower to do it but um i guess it didn't sucker too much from the base yeah. but it did get thicker over time but and i i love how you're you're making native plants yeah. interactive for your your children oh, yeah. and for for anyone else that visited visits your property mm-hmm. in a way that they're interactive and if you couple it with things like elderberry uh, or black chokeberry it, it can be interactive as far yeah. as eating the berries or the flowers mm-hmm. or something like that so it's a great great teaching tool thank you for thinking outside of the box and that was a great question yeah, I really, really appreciate was. it so uh, and hopefully if any of our listeners would like to weigh in on this if they've done anything like this or or have uh, any experience or or comments Mm -hmm. they can comment on the uh native plants healthy planet facebook group you ready for question number two yes i am all right hi brandon tom my name is jen i'm calling from massachusetts merrimack mass uh loving your show show. so thank you so much for all the interesting information and the great guests that you feature um i just discovered it a few weeks ago and have just been binge listening so it's great um i had a question for you guys i'm um I've got a couple native pollinator gardens that I've been starting, a lot of stuff from seed, and I'm totally into all the research, finding the right site and everything. Um, I am on a two-acre plot of land, and the issue is the invasive plants. So we just moved here a year ago, and we've got patches of really well-established, bittersweet, swallowwort, invasive honeysuckle, multi-floor rose even a touch of knotweed. Um, I'm trying to find the best way to manage it without using chemicals. So planning on cutting back during certain points of the year. We're in winter here, so I've been clearing out tons of bittersweet. Basically, plan so far is to keep cutting back periodically through the season. Maybe try to annoy it with some vinegar, um, but I'm just at the beginning of this, I've done some research, don't want to use chemicals, um, and I just want some guidance if you guys are able to provide it for the best way to attack something like this. Um, we have done like a whole map of our property and color-coded the areas where the invasive plants are. Uh, and like I said, plan right now is to do periodic cutting through the season until hopefully we just exhaust the plant. But I cannot believe how powerful bittersweet is, so I don't know how I'm going to defeat it without chemicals. So if you could help me, I'd love to hear it. Long message, but thanks again for all your work. 
and for getting this important message out. Take care. So another great question, and and I guess our best advice is if you're planning on attacking, especially uh, bittersweet without chemicals, is we preach this all the time, patience, because mm-hmm. it's not going to be easy, and it is going to be a lot of work, but you can't be discouraged. Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah. you really can't. So uh, I think they found that the best best way to control bittersweet really is attacking the root system and pulling it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not always going to be you know if you're dealing with a large portion of land. Digging out all the bittersweet isn't going to – it may not be a viable option. You may be able to pull some out as you see it, but um, but the, the really the only way to, to kill it is is attacking the root system. Mm-hmm. So um, if, if you can't cut it out, you can uh, window cut. So at, at, at base and eye level, um, you know, if it's, if it's creeping up, you want to give it a good cut at eye level, one at the base to make sure that you're really killing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just have to keep cutting and cutting and cutting. So you cut, it's going to shoot back up, get a little bit of time to shoot up, and then you cut it again. So you can cut and, and, and put a little vinegar on it, but it's going to shoot up again, and it's going to keep. But you have to be diligent to where you exhaust its energy mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's going to take all of its energy to, to push new new shoots. And you have to, if you miss a cut, it's going to rebound. Mm-hmm. So – um, and it's going to take multiple cut, cuts over multiple years, um, and same with honeysuckle. I think both, both it's it's really a lot of work, um, mm-hmm. but it's a good fight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a good it's 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 worth it's worth the work if you can do it. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to to use chemicals or, or herbicides dil- diligently, you could probably do like a when you do that cut, just paint it on. Like use a yeah. little paintbrush and then just. That way, you're not getting it on anything but the the target, yeah. um, and then again, it's going to be you it, that herbicide. Depending on what you use, will go into the roots and then kill the root underground, and you don't have to physically remove the root. That's a, a technique that's really gained a lot of popularity in, in habitat management. Is your because you're not there is no overspray, there is no drift, there is it's it's literally you're taking that chemical and you're wearing gloves and beating goggles and being careful so you don't get it on yourself and you're just putting it on your your target there so if you want if you don't have the patience and you want to go to a chemical control route that's a way you can do it with uh again using diligence and and not getting it on other species and and do your research because i believe if i remember correctly that bittersweet does have a tolerance to some chemicals Mm -hmm. so not every chemical is going to give you the same bang for your buck so uh just do your research if you decide to go that way to to make the right choice the other thing i would look at too is what's surrounding your property uh you may have a uphill battle if you're controlling your property Mm -hmm. but there's bittersweet on all the land surrounding your property yep and it may be one of those things where you realize you can fight all you want. You're not going to win that battle. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know the answer for that one unless you have relationships with the property next to it and it's maybe it's not as bad and you could do a little control over there or convince mm-hmm. convince those landowners to do a little control there. So um but before you you make the the good fight, just make sure it's not for nothing mm-hmm. and that yeah. that you have a good idea of what's around you and and are able to control that so it's just not going to keep coming in so but that's a great we appreciate you thinking about that and wanting to take those steps and we have a lot of listeners that are doing the same thing and uh 
just be patient and and ask questions. And if you have more questions, call back in. And again, if our listeners have experience with this, they want to share on the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, add it. We, yep. We'll we'll make sure we follow up on the next buzz, and uh, people can can have that conversation there. So we do have one more question. You ready? Yep. Hey, Fran and Tom. My name is Emily. I am calling from Charleston, South Carolina, and I can't believe I'm finally calling in, but I had three different questions for you guys. Um, the first is I'd really like to grow a sweet spire, but how do you know what the roots do? Because there's a water line running behind our house, and I don't know how far the roots would spread for something that gets that big. Um, my second question is I've seen when I'm researching some of these plants that some say they are tolerant of black walnut, and what does that mean? Like, I have this picture in my head as the black walnut roots just, like, punching anything that tries to grow under them. <laughs> so I'm really curious why some plants specify their tolerance. And my third question is, do you know of any good resources for a brand-new gardener who doesn't have any prior experience for taking care of plants native, ecologically-minded? So a lot of the traditional mindset of plant books say to deadhead things early or prune it back at certain seasons but on your show you usually say a bee might be nesting in the stem or leave the seeds for the birds to eat and for someone who has no experience at all it can be very confusing as to how to care for the plants once i've got them in the ground Uh, anyway thank you so much for your podcast i've been loving listening to it and i hope to hear back from you bye tom maybe we should collaborate on a book on how to ecologically manage your landscape. Yeah. yeah. It, maybe that's our calling. Yeah. <laughs> now, and Emily, those are three fantastic questions. Um, do you want me to tackle the first one? Yeah, why don't you go ahead. All right. So Itea virginica or Virginia sweet spire, um, one clue for me on, on what the root system would be like is the wetland indicator status for that plant is an obligate, which means 99% of the time naturally that that plant in nature is found in wetlands. So a lot of wetland plants, because they're in moisture, tend not to be deep-rooted because they don't have to search for water. Now, Virginia sweet spire will form colonies and sucker from the roots. So that plant may form a colony that ends up being four or five plants, six plants. So it can spread. So you're going to have to control it if you don't want it to spread further than it's going. Um, The other thing too is – if it's in wetlands, it tends to be shallow rooted. But if you're putting it in non wetlands, which this plant will survive in non wetlands, it's actually very tolerant of drier conditions. But that means it will force the roots to go a little bit deeper because it's looking for water that's typically available when it's shallow. So um, it will sucker more when it's wet and it suckers less. So if it is dry, it may get a little more deeper rooted, but may not colonize as much. When it's wet, it's going to really spread. So um, keep that in mind and, and just look at how far away you are and, and the conditions, and that may help you if that is the right choice for that. I don't believe – it's going to be extensive wide. I don't think it's going to be extensive. If you're worried about how deep it's going, I, that's not as concerned as just keeping it under wraps. Yeah. Um, on the black walnut question and uh, plants having a black walnut tolerance, I guess the, the first part is black walnuts, uh, their roots fall in leaves, the husk of the, the actual nut – uh, secrete a, a chemical called juggalone, which I believe is also the insane clown posse's uh, fragrance line <laughs> as well. As <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I hope someone finds that as music as amusing as us. I really do. <laughs> All right. Oh, but, gaining, gaining uh, yes, composure. All right. Yes. But um, so that chemical is uh, well, the plant is Juglans nigra is the um the botanical name, but it gives it an allele, allelopathic effect, uh, which will kill certain plants that are under its canopy. Um, and and yeah, the tannins also like yeah. if I I've said this before, if you've ever picked up a black cherry and thrown it, like it stains mm-hmm. your hand and it's not yep. washing off. So the tannins from that really uh have you know it, it just stains if you're dealing with it you're you're dealing with multiple things. yes yeah so but there are plants that can tolerate it. It, it a lot of plants can't yeah and that's why though you'll see those warnings on plants is um is so that you don't think oh i'm gonna go plant this under my black walnut because there's a lot of stuff that won't be able to tolerate that those conditions because of the the allelopathic um effects of the the black walnut so that's basically what it means there's some plants that can tolerate it there's many that cannot you don't want to go to your garden center or nursery and buy something plant it there and then find out oh i spent all that money and it just died because they competed so now i could be completely wrong this is i'm I'm going from memory going back like 30 years like you have that that where some things can't survive under the canopy, and then you have some native trees that you can't plant things under its canopy or it will kill that tree. Like if I remember correctly, like American beech is very sensitive to what you plant underneath of it, really? um, and it may struggle if if you try to do too much. Typically, I think when you're in a – it's hard to tell around here when if you're in a, a beech forest. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of understory because of the deer, but I think it's it's a little more sensitive to what you plant around the roots yep. so it, it can work both ways um in that one but that's great advice and then your your last question about resources for uh caring for your land ecologically or your landscape that's a little more difficult because i i couldn't find an exact resource my first thought was uh claudia west and uh mm-hmm. timothy rayner's book um uh, planning in a post wild world which it gives you a lot a lot of great advice. I don't know if it's going to give you all the great hands-on advice you need, but mm-hmm. it's a good place to start just as if you're thinking ecologically. It's a it's a good starting place. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things that popped into my mind is uh, the Ecological Landscape Alliance, and it's I think it's it's meant to be more trade yeah. uh, uh, affiliated, but I know there's a good amount of passionate homeowners or, or people who are in homeowners associations or uh, environmental commissions um, that aren't professionals, I guess I would say, that are involved with that association and really doing some great things. And there's some really, really good information that you can find on their website. Uh, a good amount of it's free. There's uh, some stuff that you only get being a paid member. Um, but there's a lot of great information they're putting out from a wide stretch of the country as well. Uh, I think they're based out of the Northeast, if I'm not mistaken. I, so, I believe so. So there might not be. It's a lot of the information I know is pertinent to the Northeast, but a lot of it will carry over to the um, the Southeast as well. So, and then um, now I'm, I'm just thinking of it's paying attention to a lot of the social media. You look at um, the Native Habitat Project social medias, their TikToks, their Instagram, their um, their Facebook page, YouTube. He's putting out a lot of stuff more on larger property management. But given a lot of the same tips, um, and then even some of Doug Talmy's social media as well, 
uh, with Homegrown National Park. They have a lot of information they're putting out. There, too. There's a lot of ecologically minded groups, wild ones comes mm-hmm. to mind uh, on how they handle things. They have a lot of great information. And that gives you a, an opportunity to network with other homeowners that are mm-hmm. ecologically minded as well. So yeah. you can you can uh, throw advice back and forth. Um, you can use our, our Facebook group, Native Plants mm-hmm. Healthy Planet. There's a lot of great conversations on asking advice and how to handle certain things. So if you ever have questions, you can always – Throw them in there, or again, you can call us again. Yeah. Um, and the, the the other thing we thought of was using your cooperative extension. Yeah. And that may sound a little counterintuitive because cooperative extensions are also where a lot of your master gardener groups are housed, and that's where a lot of this traditional gardening advice is coming from. But we're seeing more and more that not only are those master gardener groups looking more and more at native plants and saying, oh, this I've been having this uh, formal garden for years, but I want to incorporate more natives, and they're upping their education in that regard. But you also see cooperative extension. I know Rutgers does a ton of stuff on on how to, um, I, don't, I don't want to say landscape ecologically, but ecological benefits of that you can incorporate in your landscape. Yeah. So, which I guess is kind of the same, the same <laughs> thing. But, but they're putting out a lot. What I'm trying to say is they're, Rutgers specifically is putting out a lot of great resources um, for tips of using native plants, for, for just gardening with a more ecological focus and, and land care with a more ecological focus. And I'm seeing it out of, I think Clemson has some stuff. I see Oklahoma State is putting out a bunch of stuff. So it's happening all over the country. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some extension agents, agents and agencies are more progressive than others, but um, it's finding the right one for your area and finding the right one that can educate you. So So that's awesome. And Emily, thank you for, again, great questions. We had a ton of great questions. So many that we we didn't even prepare a topic this week because we knew we were already over an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I did, speaking of questions, I just want to let you know I did reach out to Saul Mm -hmm. to make sure Saul is okay. Is he mad at us? He's not mad. He's actually uh, uh, laying low because He hibernates. He's hibernating (laughs) because of the pandemic. He's he's just been kind of keeping it quiet, and he apologized that we haven't heard from him. And he said he'll touch base with us soon. So Saul is good. I'm glad I was able to uh, touch base with him. So uh, hopefully we'll be hearing from him in the next month. You know, spring is right around the corner. He's going to end up having a ton of uh, questions or misinformation, I'm sure. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, so I'm excited because the next segment. We haven't. We've only done once since we created the, the new jingle. The long return, a wait, long-awaited return of Grow Read a Book. Oh, oh, oh. I quite, you know, and what? then you don't even have the jingle <laughs> ready, Fran. Oh, <laughs> you know what it was? I turned. I'm so afraid. We, we're playing a lot of these questions through my phone, and I'm so afraid I'm going to get a phone call or a text, uh, even though it's because <laughs> gotcha. I have my kids yeah. on like emergency breakthrough. Yep. That as soon as I played the last question. I muted it, but mm-hmm. I also muted the soundboard gotcha. at the same yeah. time. All right, let's try this again. It's the long-awaited return of Grow, Read a Book. Grow, Read a Book. I like books. <laughs> I was so excited, I messed it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so excited to, to talk about a book again because I I, I was actually reading a uh, a analog book. Uh, oh, I guess is the okay. way to put it, and I haven't finished it yet, so that's going to be my next one. But um, I actually listened to some really cool books just over the last couple months. One of which was called uh, 
I think it was the one was Road to El Dorado, which was a fascinating. Um, basically, they basically described how we took over the West, um, in, incorporating the Native American story and how we kind of took it away from Native Americans. But starting with Lewis and Clark, um, and then towards the end, you're getting into the the Forty Niners in California. But all the different regions, you kind of lose track of. Oh, we just kind of moved west, but it was different missions. Whether it was through um, Mormonism, through gold, through farming, through uh, Theodore Roosevelt wanted to become a farmer. So that was a really interesting book, and I'm just going to give that one a little plug. But it wasn't necessarily nature or plant related. The book I want to talk about <laughs> is actually called The Nature Fix, and that's by okay. Florence Williams, which I just finished uh, yesterday, in fact, and it was really, really good because it did a good job of scientifically explaining how some of the the biophilia that we experience works. Um, it's broken down into f- uh, five parts. Part one is basically looking at how or introducing the topic and then saying why we feel better when we're around nature. Okay. Um, and it's basically research is increasingly showing that people are significantly happier and healthier and in some cases wealthier when they spend more times outdoors in nature. The wealthier part is, I don't know if it's just a correlation. I don't think it's a causation that if you spend time in nature, you are wealthier. But they find that uh, more affluent areas tend to be, there's just more trees. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that is more the other way, where it's actually, they can afford to have more trees than than less affluent areas. Um, the term biophilia is uh, popularized by entomologist E.O. Wilson, who's recently passed. And it's basically that emotional affiliation of humans to other living organisms like plants and, and nature. Where, where that really makes sense to me is, especially because of the pandemic, when you think of how isolated people feel when they're disconnected from other people. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of stuck in your house and you kind of – you know, it takes an f- effect on you mentally. And so many people that couldn't communicate with other people refound nature. Yeah. And even though they might have been alone or with just a couple other people, it, it – created this whole new sense of togetherness with with nature with other living organism mm-hmm. organisms so it's i mean that was almost like the, the pandemic was almost like a living experiment as far as connection with biophilia mm-hmm. yeah so and then uh basically this like i said there's more and more research coming out to support this and the research that the author uh talks about is that basically spending time in forests or nature uh, reduces your cortisol levels, uh, decreases. I'm, <laughs> I'm watching because I can see myself on the Zoom, and you're frozen in mid-thought with the hand up <laughs> like. <laughs> no, I just said uh, Zoom unexpectedly quit. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll it still see. says it's recording on my end, but you're frozen what's, on mine. Uh, what's the meeting ID? Uh, uh, it should say it on uh, your Zoom hold on. I Hold on. I will look. Meeting ID is 853-0495-8850. Okay. There's a lot of technical errors on my, my <laughs> end today. Oh, That's all right. And I don't know the password. Uh, um, recording uh, stopped. All right. Never mind. That's okay. This might just be an audio version. It's an audio yeah. version. So Go for it. Um, where was I? So you know, it's spending good, time in forest and nature. It's, it's a good thing because we didn't want to have people see our sword fight. Yeah, you know, I think true. that was best behind closed doors. Yeah. 
and and you know solved in a private manner. Yep. So go going back to the book, uh, spending time in forest and nature reduce cortisol levels, decrease uh, sympathetic nervous system activity, blood pressure, and heart rate, um, and also gave you higher immunity. So interesting. But it's more than just, I guess, spending time in nature. That she broke it down in part two, how it's not just like your sight and seeing nature. In fact, they found not all nature helped you in those ways where where it made you a healthier person. Um, they found that like seeing a for someone who wasn't familiar with it, seeing a a, a mountain scape in winter with all the trees defoliated actually made them more anxious in a lot of senses. Um, now people who are familiar with that landscape also knew what it was and thought it was beautiful. But if you showed someone from the city who hadn't been to the Rocky mountains and seen them in winter where there's not, where in a place where there weren't evergreens, it actually made them more, um, raise some of those levels and raise their heart rate, uh, because they, the jagged edges and the, the dead trees didn't soothe them. Gotcha. Um, but it's also they found that um, the sounds are directly correlate with some um, – what's the way I'm trying to put it? With some health issues. They actually found that uh, for every dive, five decibel increase where you're hearing man-made noises, okay. kids would be behind two, ever, or two additional months in their reading levels. Really? So you think of someone who's reading at a, a ninth-grade level – if you were in a place that was really near an airport or a train depot or something like that where it was really noisy, they were actually reading at lower rates than people who were in peaceful and serene where there weren't a lot of man-made noises. That's not to say those places aren't always loud because you have – if everyone's been out in for sunrise, you hear how loud the birds are. But what? it's what? Uh, it's those noises are meant to – actually, I shouldn't say are meant, but they soothe a lot of humans instead of – Causing chaos. You know, it's it's interesting, and I wonder if it depends on the sound. Now, you've been to my old house that I lived mm-hmm. at for twenty years, yeah. and my property backed up to the New Jersey Turnpike, and it got to the point where I didn't notice it. My kids didn't notice it, yeah. but anyone who came to visit noticed it. Like mm-hmm. when we went to sell it, there were people like, "I love the house, but I can't." I and there can't was take that noise, but it's consistent noise. And she touches on that too, and says that some people are like can get used to it. There's some people, her included, who just could not get used to it. They moved from Colorado, rural Colorado, to Washington, D.C., right near Reagan International Airport. Okay. And there was just planes flying over, and she's like, it was just maddening. And actually, at the end of the book, she talks about a snowstorm where a lot of the flights got canceled. And she's like, people are outside, shoving their, there's a sense of community. During, like, she's like, you couldn't eat outside. It was just too loud. Wow. And people didn't spend time outside until the planes were grounded because of the snow. And then people were outside enjoying the outdoors. Um, uh, but in their studies that show that hospitals with views, um, with beds that are looking out into a light area, uh, the people heal faster and okay. are out of the hospital quicker, which is something I've wrestled before. And even like, if you go into offices, schools, places that have a view or a window looking out to nature, um, and even if it's just a, a grass field, they would score better on tests. They'd read better. Uh, offices were more productive. Um, housing projects were less um, aggressive, I guess is the best way to put it. So really interesting correlations there. Part three talks a lot about Finland and how there's actually a national program in Finland where in addition to like health insurance, you get like nature, not nature insurance, but you get like a a natural 
there's a nature spot in Finland, is okay. basically what she said. And through your jobs, they'll actually, or through the government, you're provided access to these spa treatments because they found that just five hours a month in spent in nature made you a healthier individual wow. and lowered your stress levels, just lowered, just really raised your emotional well-being um, to a much higher level. Um, and that, that, that's not just spending five hours outside. It was spending five hours in nature, nature like where you aren't hearing a lot of man-made noise. Gotcha. Which she even had us part in there talking about man-made noise. And she's like, you go to the, even like the middle of the Olympia forest and there's only like a two hour window where you aren't hearing man-made noise. Yeah. Where you're starting to hear planes go overhead. And it's like just, there's the flight patterns. That's the only time you can actually go there and just hear natural sounds not man-made sounds you know it's it's even how far you have to go just to get away from light pollution oh yeah it's amazing yeah. uh part four was talking about how um it's not just about our mental well-being but also um the benefits of social contact exercise and how it impacts our brains okay uh and even helps like adhd uh ptsd um those kind of things that you can put people in like nature courses and you'll find that they'll actually it'll help heal them because so many of those issues are from man-made altercations. And then part five is talking about how rapidly we're urbanizing and how that has some serious health risks, including mental mental health for city dwellers. Um, And it basically living in urban environments causes a lot of fear in a lot of people where they just have um, unprovoked fear, I guess is the way, the way to put it. And, uh, even though a lot of people are living in cities, think of your favorite place. And over 60% of people describe their favorite places as natural areas. Um, very few are saying, oh, and I'm sure there's people like, oh, I went on a vacation to Paris and I just love sitting in the cafe yeah. all, along the Seine. But a lot of people are remembering the camp that they used to go to when they were a kid and that trip fishing that they took to the lake. That's their, when they think of their favorite places, that's where they escape to are natural settings. Really, really interesting book that goes into a lot of science way better than I just did about how healthy and beneficial nature is and how she even talks about Singapore and how they're using biophilic design to introduce nature into urban areas and how like mentally healthy it is for a lot of these, these people. And they're just rejuvenating these cities and okay we have a canal in the middle of the city we're going to turn it into a a babbling brook instead of a canal and you're finding people walking through and just really enjoying it and even though they're in the middle of the city they're getting that natural experience we've talked about it with other articles about stuff that's happening in portland and seattle and and all over the country so yeah so that's my book that's great uh, i i would give it a recommendation that you should read it i you know it's one of those things where a lot of what what is talked about that you mentioned are things that you feel but maybe never verbalized or actually you may feel it but never took a moment to understand why. Um, But it complete. this sounds like something I would completely uh, enjoy. So I I will definitely be reading it. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like this. So Awesome. We got to take it or leave it. We do. And to me, this one's a little controversial, and I I don't even know how I'm going to answer this one. All right. So we talked about provenance on the last take it or leave it. I want to take that one step further, and for our take it or leave it this episode, eco-regions. And I'm supposed for, to answer. For C- yeah, well, you know, <laughs> no. here's the thing. There, 
there's very detailed maps on on seed eco regions that it's not literally mm-hmm. just this this county or this state yeah and it, it kind of flows more with the the natural communities mm-hmm. um and it's it's more detailed than just yeah. saying hey this is I want seed within 25 miles of this. Um, mm-hmm. I want it specifically in this region that maybe goes southwest to northeast through this part of this state. And it's 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 really there's there's a lot of nurseries that swear by this and mm-hmm. and give out eco region maps and show the eco region that they're in. Yeah. Well, I I I know you look at the like the New Jersey pine barrens. Yeah. That's the same eco region as um, as you start getting out in Long Island, yeah. and then even Cape parts of Cape Cod are that same eco region, yeah. even though we're a little bit more inland from New Jersey. We I think we actually are the same eco region, but you get um, a little bit further north of New Jersey, that wouldn't be the same eco region. So I and I understand the premise, and I think there's a lot of merit there. I don't think it works from a on a practical level of where like actually getting the material. I think it's it's Almost too. It's, I should say, I think it's too restrictive. I don't think it's. If you're doing it yourself, it's you can do it. Yes, but if you're if you need someone else to grow those plants for you, if you need to buy the plants, I don't think it's possible. I I think, like you said, it has a lot of merit, and I appreciate it. And it's science, and it's factual, and it's good. But it's also extremely difficult we always talk about so many of our listeners talk about how hard it is just to find native plants let alone local provenance well if you're going to limit it even more to eco region and as a grower you're really limiting yourself too if Mm. you're saying i I collected this from this eco region and maybe you're 15 20 miles away but you're in a different eco region you know and it's like well do i not want to use that plant it's it's so much more specific and it's already a difficult topic mm-hmm. and it makes it a little more difficult. I'm not saying that it's not worthwhile yeah. or it's not correct or that it's not worth trying. Mm-hmm. It's just a hard thing to to strictly adhere to, I yeah. think. The question our, I always pose is if say I'm looking for a pitch pine and I can get it from selection A and it's going to cost me for a, a three gallon pot. It's going to cost me twenty dollars, and I it's a reputable grower. They, um, I, it's a five foot tall tree. It's healthy. It's happy. It's everything is right about this person. Price price is good, but then they're not in my eco region. I could get it from grower B, and they are in my eco region, but the price is triple. They don't respond to any of my calls or emails. Um, I know they have disease issues when i look at the plant it's a foot tall and just looks like it's gonna die where do you choose your plant from yeah yes that's i think the flaw in that because it's still at the end of the day it's still it's only one component of it you still have the economic component you have the the uh, propagation and and health components of it and and i'm not just so much more that goes into it than just where the plant's from and i'm not discounting it and this is a this is an example of why it's important you mentioned Mm -hmm. the pine barrens Blackjack oak, Quercus myrolandica, which is a, a component of the New Jersey pine barrens. In the pine barrens, because it gets used to being hit back by fire, it is adapted to only grow 10 feet tall. 
and to become a little bit more shrubby, mm-hmm. like 10 to 12 foot tall, more of like a, a large shrub than a small tree to adapt to those fires. Mm-hmm. Um, but naturally, if you were to take a blackjack oak from other places in the country, you can get up to 25 to 30 foot tall. Yep. It's different genetics and it's it's different from the conditions that it's used to. It's in a different eco region and it's going to perform differently. So if you were in the Pine Barrens, you really want yeah. a blackjack oak from that eco region. Mm-hmm. It's not always going to be possible, and I don't think it's a box you want to limit yourself to that box and not get out of. And it's the same. We had the very similar conversation with provenance, but at some point, at what point do you say I want to shoot for this? I guess, you know, if possible, yeah. If you could always get your eco region, you would want that. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how feasible or possible yeah. it is right now. Yeah, exactly. And I get yeah. That's my bigger point. There's a lot of work that went into it. I think it's. It's a box that you should have on your checklist, yeah. but it shouldn't be the limiting factor on your checklist. And that's why I think I would leaf it, but I'm not. I'm not completely closing the door on it. I'm. Uh, I'm. The, <coughs> I'm. Che- I'm looking at it, and I'm. Yes. It's a part of my components, but it's not my limiting factor. I'm so with does you. that mean I take it, or I? Leave? I don't know. It's. But it's definitely. It's something important. Something I yeah. pay attention to. So if you're it's, unfamiliar with it, Google. Uh, it's eco region. Eco yeah. uh, seed eco regions, and just look at the map, and so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. Yep. So and we can have this discuss, discussion further if we want to carry this over to yeah. the Native Plants Healthy oh, yeah. Planet Facebook group. We can do that. But I thought that would be an interesting one and difficult one at the same time. Yes, uh, definitely. Because I one. see the importance of it. Oh yeah, it's just very. Yeah, I don't always put as much stock into it mm-hmm. as I should possibly. Yeah, yeah, and that, I guess that's kind of my point. Is it's something you want to have on your checklist, but it's. There's so many other things that I think it come before it just because of the the practicality of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. So, but that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the buzz. Thank you everyone for listening. To Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. A uh, huge thank you to R.J. Comer uh, for our buzz theme music. Can't imagine the buzz without that music. Make sure you stream or buy R.J.'s music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume your music. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and or uh, at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, or YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, you know, I I think we mentioned this before, but Facebook. The reason why it says Pinelands Nursery NJ because there is a Pinelands Nursery in Florida. Yes, I wonder yeah. how many people listen to this podcast and think we're the Florida people. It's possible. Yes, yeah. it's possible. But. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. The last couple of buzz has been lit up, and we appreciate all the wonderful questions. Call us at 215-346-6189. Again, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We're going to play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it to the best of our abilities. And uh, we mentioned the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group about 10 times today, and for good reason. Mm-hmm. It's a great group of people, and I'm very proud of all the conversations that are going on over there. Yeah, so you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast, you're going to be able to find us there. You're also going to be able to find a Native Plant every day on all of those uh, all of those uh, outlets as well. Yeah. Um, if you go to our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com, there is a little link on the top where it says check out our store, support native plants. If you click on that, it's going to take you to our Teespring store where you'll be able to get all the Native Plants Healthy Planet merch. And remember, Fran and I don't take a, a dime out of it. Pinelands Nursery doesn't take any money of that we accumulate there. It's all going to um, some nonprofits that we think are doing really, really valuable work. And uh, and 
eventually we're going to get close to giving out another. We're not quite there yet, but yeah. we're going to be able to give out a little bit more money. Awesome. Hopefully in the next couple months. So awesome. Um, when you're listening, if you're able to leave a five star review. I forgot to mention it earlier, but when you do that, we have one entry now to, to win our Yeti tumbler. But um, but it would be nice to have more. Yeah, <laughs> so, keep it going. So keep I'm going to keep begging and pleading for all these reviews until we have infinite reviews. That's uh, <laughs> that's just part of the gig. Now, so. I, I know it's my turn for a secret, but I was going to defer. As we were recording a native plant every day, you said you had a secret for later and you were going to share it for the yeah. buzz. So I was going to go – do you remember what it is? I, I do. I, I actually put it in here, but I was thinking I would do it next time because then it will be after that episode airs. Oh, well, I don't so, have I don't Okay, have then I'll give my secret. I don't have a is, secret. Uh, well, this is a little teaser. Yes. So Monday you're going to be able to start listening to these episodes. Yeah, there's a plant we talk about that's in the Air Casey family. Yes. And, um, and my dad used to work in the Pine Barrens before I was born, and – uh, and that's why it was actually called Pinelands Nursery because he spent so much time there and was growing Pinelands plants to start out. And um, when I was – when my mom was pregnant with me, uh, he proposed the name that he wanted to name me after some kind of plant, and he loved blueberries. That was actually what gave the business a start. So he said, well, why don't we name him Eric Casey after the Eric Casey family? <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not named that. I'm named Tom, so – uh, somehow wow. it got squashed, but that was uh, – and my dad still tells that story that that's what he wanted to name me. All right, so, so I will share – you know, I didn't have a secret because I just assumed yeah. we were going to talk about that. But you telling that secret made me think of – did I ever share with what my parents were going to name me? They had a name for me. Do you want to share it on a future episode? No, I'll share it now because it's, it's relevant. And they had this name until they put me on my mother's – you know, in my mother's arms after I was born. And she changed her name, and I'm a junior, so I'm mm-hmm. named after my dad. Yeah. But my name was going to be Fritz. Oh, okay. Fritz Chismar. Yeah. Now, I guess at least people would have known I was a male and not mm-hmm. a female yes. with a name like Fritz, yeah. but I don't know. Like growing up in the 70s with a name. Now, Fritz is – there's a couple there's Fritzes a of Fritzes locally. Fritzes around here, yeah. Not where I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that would have yeah. gone over, but it was – my name was almost Fritz. Good story. Yeah. So. There you go. All right. Well, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you again next week with our Meet the Guest. Uh, We have so many that could be next. I don't even know which one it's going to be. It's like one of three. So so stay tuned, and you'll be just as surprised as, as we are. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.